1991, uh, my dad was selling a brown mini. Uh, it was a strange experiment in our house where we went to the smallest car in the market. Not quite sure why we did that. But anyway, he was uh, planning to sell that car and it had a for sale sign on uh, the back of the car. And that same year, I passed my driving test. And on the second night of passing my driving test, I took this brown Mini, which was for sale, out for a drive. Uh, Jinmo, stop beating me to the, the line that I'm, I'm saying. Come to it. Just listen. And uh, uh, I came up to traffic lights. It was raining. And being an inexperienced driver, put on the brakes too late and swung gently into the back of the car in front. So uh, it was uh, a humbling experience. And uh, it could have been a lot worse, of course. Uh, but I was understandably rather fearful uh, being driven home by the people whose car I'd pranged uh, to the house to see uh, the reaction uh, from the home. And uh, my dad's reaction was, it doesn't really matter. You're okay. The car can be fixed. And I've never really forgotten that um, response of grace that he gave uh, at that time. Uh, and I'll return to that at the very end of the story, or at the end of uh, our sermon tonight, because I think in a very simple and practical way, I think it's, it's relevant. Um, grace, grace at work in everyday situations. But uh, there's, this is a, an instance, it's a little story about the prophets, uh, the school of the prophets, the seminary of prophets who Elisha was teaching, and how they wanted somewhere, to, uh, somewhere better to meet together, and they were going to build somewhere on the Jordan, and uh, they were cutting down trees, and one of them swinging the axe, and the axe head flies off and falls into the Jordan River, and he's worried, and it, Elisha throws in a stick and it floats and he takes it back out. It's an unusual story. But there's two basic ways of looking at a story like this from the Bible. And I'm going to use, just to show off, I'm going to use two big words tonight uh, that you all will know, but uh, they are helpful for us when we think about a text like this. We can look at this in two different ways. We can look at it either in an anthropocentric way, okay, or in a theocentric way. Now, you know what anthropocentric means, don't you? Um, anthropos means man, mankind. Anthropology is the study of people, study of men and women. So if something's anthropocentric, it means it's man-centered. So we can look at it, and I could have just said that, couldn't I? We can look at it in a man-centered way. Or we can look at it in a theocentric way, theos being uh, the word for God. Theology, the study of God. So the, uh, theocentric is a God-centered way. So we can look at it in both these ways. And if we look at it in a human, man-centered way, this passage like this, we can respond in two different ways to it, I guess, maybe more, at least two different ways. One is we can read a passage like this from a man-centered point of view and just think, this is ridiculous, and disbelieve it. It's silly. You know, it's just a parable. It's just a story. It's not real. It don't be, you know, we're much, we know much more than that now. It doesn't happen. Iron 
uh, axe heads don't float. And uh, if, even if they did, what's the point of this story? It's a, a myth. There's a, we can, at best, we can, we can take, uh, we can spiritualize it and uh, see that there's some, something else happening. Or we can um, look at it with different eyes and see that it really uh, there was another explanation for what happened. In a lot of the miracles in the New Testament, for example, people will say, well, they weren't really miracles. Uh, certain things were happening. It's just the, the way they were written, and they try to maybe even scientifically explain it away. So disbelief, and that, that would maybe be our natural tendency to look at a passage like this and, and find it difficult to believe. Or we could look at it from a man-centered point of view, yet with the eyes of faith, but still being kind of man-centered, so that we're looking at this passage and saying, well, what is it saying for me? What can I get from it? Um, what's in it for me? What's a passage like this got to do? And, and what can it teach me for, for my life? Maybe, maybe I shouldn't borrow things because this was a, an axe that was borrowed and maybe it's something about it's not right to borrow. Maybe it's about how we look after someone else's tools, someone else's equipment. Maybe it's if I had the faith of Elisha that God will do magic in my life. And we can look at it from a kind of human human-centered point of view, but with faith, if you see what I mean. I don't know if you see what I mean with that. Um, but almost always just looking at what I can, what can change my life or what can, moral ethics can I learn or gain from, something like this. But I think it's important to remind ourselves that the purpose of Scripture is not primarily as a, um, as a guidebook on how to live. Uh, it's not like a highway code for living, although there are elements of, of that in, in the teaching of Christ and of God. It's much more than that. It's a revelation. So it's a revelation of God. So it's telling us primarily first, even at what we would regard as maybe an, a rather insignificant story like this, it's telling us something about God. It's not primarily telling us uh, about ourselves, but it's telling us something about God, and it's revealing God. Uh, and so we look at Scripture, and even passages like this, in, in a theocentric way, in a way that is asking, what does this tell us about God? How can we learn more about God through a passage like this? So very briefly, uh, to put this story in its context, which will always help. Now, we're not told very much here, and we don't have much detail. Uh, therefore, there's not much we can say in many ways about the story uh, but we do need to understand that, that the context uh, is culturally and contextually very different from our own, obviously. It's a different day, different generation, different issues. We've seen already that the prophets, the school of the prophets, were living in a massive kind of political and religious maelstrom. And that was going on all around them. And God was dealing with uh, his own people in judgment in many ways. And uh, for they, they turned against him. And the prophets themselves were poverty-stricken. Uh, they were living in uh, really uh, difficult days for them in terms of uh, uh, the standard of their living. And they were surrounded by Canaanite worship, uh, worship of Id idolatry. And, and so God was being uh, sidelined and ignored and they were worshipping uh, Canaanite 
gods, particularly Baal, god of fertility, uh, who interestingly saw, or the people around who worshipped Baal uh, recognized that uh, there was, they thought there was other gods of the rivers, like the River Jordan and the seas, who were uh, almost enemies of Baal. And so we've got this little story of uh, 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 an axe head uh, ending up in the water, ending up in the river. And we can immediately begin to see that there would have been a, a spiritual significance of God dealing with that, dealing with, even for the Jews, water and the river and sea was, was divisive and was seen as a bit like uh, death and uh, going, you know, going down into the sea was seen as, as going down into death and there was, there was something quite sinister about the water. So there's something here that speaks of God's power and God's authority even over uh, these uh, elements, uh, natural elements. But also, in terms of the context, uh, for us, we would have just said, well, you know, what's the problem? Just head down to B&Q and buy another axe. Go, go and get another one and replace it and give it back. But we recognize and know that uh, the prophets were were really poverty-stricken. And also, um, uh, an implement like this was pretty rare and, and pretty expensive. Iron at this time and in this place was expensive and was rare. And it was a, a kind of quite, an, quite a high-quality piece of equipment. Um, and to lose an iron axehead like that would have meant that the prophet would probably have spent many, many months having to work to repay it. Uh, and it would, have, it would have cost a great deal to do it. It would be like today, maybe the equivalent of, to go back to the car crash analogy at the beginning, wrecking a borrowed car uh, that you were driving and you had no insurance and uh, no cash to uh, pay back uh, the car that had been damaged. You know, it was a real cost and there would be a, a long-term repayment. So that puts it a little bit in context, and it begins to make it seem a bit more real, I hope, and a bit more significant in terms of, of Elisha's and God's intervention here, or God through Elisha. So what does it teach us briefly about God uh, for ourselves? Because in Hebrews 13:8, we're told God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think we saw that briefly this morning. And uh, we see that all of Scripture speaks about God, and there's a developing insight and understanding about God in Scripture. Now, at a very basic level, uh, it's, this speaks of grace, okay? In other words, God redeeming, not, not full-blown grace, but God redeeming a bad situation. It's a bad situation for the prophets, and God redeems it by uh, working a miracle through Elisha. And that kind of, that uh, motive of redemption, that motive of God intervening to help, to setting his people free, uh, and to uh, working on their behalf, is all the way through the Old Testament, right up to Jesus Christ, where we really see Jesus coming, as we saw this morning, to set his people free. Uh, we find it in Egypt, we find it in Mount Carmel, we find it in Isaiah 61, right through to um, Christ and to the work of Jesus. And 
even little miracles like that are, are pointing towards God's gracious intervening on behalf of his people. He, he redeems his poor servants here uh, through this miracle in similar ways, in very down-to-earth ways that he does previously in the miracles that Elisha is involved in. And uh, it's tremendous to remind ourselves that these miracles were pointing forward to a personal God who loves us and who has intervened massively and powerfully uh, against our greatest enemy, uh, sin and death, on our behalf. It speaks of his grace. It also speaks of his power. You may not think there's a great deal of power expended here in in making an iron axe head float, but nonetheless, it would have spoken powerfully to these prophets, particularly in the context of water, which was seen as such a powerful and strong and and, uh, kind of uncontrollable um, element. And we see it, uh, God working in power in the throughout the Old Testament and the plagues and the Red Sea and in Jericho and in Mount Carmel and even in the different miracles we've already looked at in the life of Elisha. And that power over natural elements uh, and his power again um, on behalf of his people does point us forward uh, to Jesus and to the ultimate revelation of uh, God's power. Uh, in Romans 1 uh, verse 16. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. It's a revelation of the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So all of these uh, micro-miracles, the micro-events in the Old Testament are pointing towards a power that is much greater and a power that's much more significant. And it's the power of the gospel of which uh, the New Testament apostles were not ashamed, and Paul was not ashamed, because it's the power of God for salvation. So it's the power to transform, not just situations, but hearts, uh, and our lives and hearts to transform them for good. So there's grace and there's power. And I think in terms of uh, uh, being taught about God here, I think we're also taught about his interest, his interest in our lives. You know, when we think of a miracle, we usually think of something massive, in a world-changing type of event. Maybe we don't, but, but you can think of uh, miracles coming in to, to make uh, a huge difference to the way society is moving. And yet so often in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the miracles were for everyday people for ordinary people, were for widows, were for orphans, were for sick people, were for uh, isolated people, were for people who were rejected by society. And God came and Jesus came and he showed himself to be interested in their everyday lives. And we've seen it already, haven't we, in different miracles that have happened in the life of Elisha. It's ordinary people that are helped. So you've got this great big massive macro kind of picture going on uh, with uh, idolatry and with God and the covenant and uh, political intrigue and worldwide kind of events happening, and yet God is involved 
in this tiny little way, in this very ordinary situation, which, you know, is neither here nor there in terms of the, the, the direction or movement in which the world is going. And it speaks about a personal God who cares about the little things in our lives. It cares not just about the massive issues of life, but also our lives, cares about our problems, cares about our needs, and uh, who uh, works into our situations. So that that sometimes the small problems we have are nonetheless very real to us and could be really very important, as, as obviously was the case here for the prophets. When he answers our prayers, and when we plead to him and he answers our prayers with regard to them, these problems become an opportunity for praise. And they build our confidence in a God who cares. You know, the New Testament talks about Jesus in these terms and and God our Father in these terms. You know, he is a loving Father. You know, when his children ask for bread, will he give them a stone? You know? And there's this sense in which it is ludicrous to think that the Father wouldn't be interested, wouldn't be concerned about the small things in our lives. And so sometimes we think, well, I can't pray about that. You know, God's, God's ruling the universe. You know, He's got bigger things. He's got bigger fish to fry. Uh, but the reality is that the living God doesn't think like that. And when we have our trust in Him through Jesus Christ... There's not a corner of our lives that he's unconcerned about. There's no a part of our lives that we could say, well, I'm not going to pray about that because that isn't something that God will be interested in or will deal with. That's not the kind of God he reveals himself to be. He reveals himself to be a personal, loving, powerful, gracious God who has an interest in our day-to-day lives. So when we are struggling with issues, when we're struggling with problems, and when we're struggling with it may be very mundane issues of health or of finance or of relationships or of workplace issues or whatever it might be. In our struggles, we take it to God uh, in the same way that the prophet here cried out, uh, or, or the, the prophets cried out to uh, Elisha to invoke his help. And in invoking his help, we're invoking the help of God. So very briefly, we learn a little bit about God uh, through a passage like this. But also we, we learn about God through Elisha himself and his kind of grace at work uh, in this situation. Um, and this might be just stretching the application a little bit, but I think it's nonetheless significant for us. Uh, Elisha was a, you know, a patriarchal figure. He was a prophet. It was a uh, really uh, honourable position that he had to be a prophet. And uh, it was regarded as as really significant and and, and valuable. And uh, you wonder if he was just too holy to be interested or to be concerned about building an extension uh, to the seminary that this men of God were looking to do. Um, maybe he could have just said, yeah, you go on, on you go. You go and do that. I'll just sit back here and I'll pray about things and I'll get God, uh, God's 
involvement in at a different level. But they they wanted him. You know, he, he was he wasn't a distant figure. Um, uh, he gave them the willingness to go, and then they said, but they they wanted him to come as a leader. They wanted him to be there to be involved, and he acquiesced to that request. He went to be with them. And then you would think maybe when the axe head falls into the water, he had every right to say, well, oh, you fool, what are you doing? That's hugely expensive. We're never going to get this seminary built now. We're going to spend ages paying these things back. How could you be so foolish? Can you condemn them? But no, we find that he is used in this situation as an instrument of grace and of God's redemptive work in their lives and it's a just a, a simple i think but a great example of how we how we react react and respond both as leaders and as christians grace gives us an interest in people around us and in their everyday needs so that holiness and Elisha is an example of a holy man of god is not monkish it's not separatist it's quite the opposite it's a recognition of who we are by grace and therefore how we respond to others uh, in the way that God has responded to us. If we understand the touch of God in our lives, as Elisha clearly did, the wreckage of our own lives, then we will respond uh, to others in an equally gracious and loving way. Um, there isn't any paradox between his beliefs and his uh, understanding of God and then his willingness to be involved in uh, their lives and in even their mistakes. Grace uh, sees the problems of others with uh, different eyes and he is used here uh, and seize the opportunity under God to use this situation for God to work, for God to take a bad situation and redeem it, and to develop a sense of love and uh, grace and power and goodness. He doesn't use it as an opportunity to condemn them for their foolishness or to criticize or to withdraw uh, and to ignore them. Uh, we see him taking this problem and applying God and applying grace and therefore applying miracles uh, to that situation. And God then intervened and acted on their behalf in a miraculous way. And it gave them confidence and it gave them belief that God cared, that God was gracious and God was kind. And in, in a very uh, simple way, uh, I think, that returns me to my father from the beginning of the sermon. That, that, a, a simple act of grace like that is often one that's never forgotten. I'm sure you're, you, can, you, you know that in your own lives. The simple things that people have done uh, have lasted in your memory for many, many years when they are an act of grace in a practical situation. Uh, as, and it, for him, it was a reflection of the grace uh, that he had in his own heart. And the kind of God we have will be reflected 
in the kind of way we respond to troubles and difficulties and oppositions and problems in our lives. If we see problems as an opportunity to cry out to God and to enable him to deal with an impossibility and also to enable us to deal with one another in grace, then we've got the picture. We've understood a little bit about God's dealings, God's character, and our being servants of God. And the kind of God we have will be reflective of the way we respond to one another and we, we respond to impossibilities and to difficulties. When we know who God is, when we know Him as a loving Father, when we know Him as a God who is powerful and gracious and interested in us, then that will determine how we respond to problems and difficulties and impossibilities and troubles in our lives. And uh, that is significant as we learn about God because it will transform these situations and it will also transform our relationships with one another. And that is always important. Grace at the core of who we are and of what we do and how we respond to one another. Amen. Let's just pray briefly together. Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand a little bit more about your grace, even in a passage uh, like this, which does seem distant from us, and uh, uh, we wonder how uh, such a small story can become part of uh, your revelation of your character. And yet when we unpack it, we begin to see consistent pictures and consistent characteristics of God who is both gracious and powerful and interested in the lives of his people. And so we know uh, that it points us to the ultimate expression of that in Jesus. And we pray that we would put our trust in Jesus as believers, as people, that we would depend, as we saw this morning, on this miraculous revelation of a judge who becomes judged, uh, the creator who takes on flesh and who uh, rises to the dock in our place, who dies for us in order to redeem us. May that give us hearts of praise and many, many thousands of reasons to rejoice in you. And help us as we go from here to put our understanding of God into practice, not just when things are going well, but when uh, everyday troubles hit, that we would respond with grace. Because we know that that will sometimes have a powerful effect, more powerful than a hundred sermons on people's lives around us when we respond with a perspective that is both dependent on God and recognizes a bigger picture and a greater reason behind events in our lives. So help us and guide us and bless us with uh, your presence as we sing together in conclusion. For Jesus' sake, amen.